So thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Jude 3 Project podcast. I'm as your as always I'm your host Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jude 3 Project. Today I have a special guest, um another uh, one of my former professors from Liberty um, Baptist Theological Seminary, now is Liberty Divinity. Um Dr. Fred Smith. Um he has a book out called Developing a Biblical Worldview. Welcome Dr. Smith. Thank you. Good to be here. <laughs> so, Dr. Smith, tell us, tell um, our listeners a little bit about you. Okay. Uh, I was born in Memphis, Tennessee, and saved at the First Baptist Church in Memphis way back in 1971. Uh, that was the beginning of a love affair with the Bible and the Lord who wrote it. And I went on to college and seminary. Uh, did my seminary degrees at Mid-America Baptist in Memphis and then at the Southwestern Baptist Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas. I did my doctorate there. Uh, my, my interest, my passion has always been bringing the biblical worldview to bear on the daily lives of Christians and helping us defend the faith effectively before a very skeptical world out there. Mm-hmm. I've been on the faculty at Liberty now for 11 years. I've been teaching apologetics and ethics and theology. And I've also pastored a a church in Texas. And I serve on the pastoral leadership team at the church I attend here in Virginia, Forest Baptist, over in Bedford County. Mm -hmm. So I've had experience with uh, pastoring. I've been... uh, active in in outreach, mission trips, uh, teaching uh, in a variety of settings. I've taught from community college to graduate school and everything in between, always with an eye to bringing the gospel to bear on the lives and on the perceptions of people facing the challenges of daily life. That's very important to me. Mm -hmm. And you, you were very helpful during my time at um, Liberty. Uh, we met usually about once a week to just yes, we did. talk about different things. So I'm definitely grateful for um, all the conversations we had. They helped me so much. Um, so thank you. Sure. I enjoyed those visits. You always brought very and, and a very solid vision for, for defending the gospel. So that was always a... a blessing to me all every time we met (laughs) so um your new book uh developing a biblical worldview uh what inspired you to write that i know you say you've always had a passion um what made you say this is the time that i need to write this book okay uh the book actually began while i was a doctoral student i i read some books at the time on worldview and western culture postmodernism One of them was a a book by Brian Walsh and Richard Middleton called Truth is Stranger Than It Used to Be. They brought brought a four-question rubric to bear on worldviews in that book. Later, I read Chuck Colson and Nancy Piercy's book, How Should We Now Live?, which used a three-question rubric. And I began at that time paying attention to ways that worldviews are our answers to external questions, and I began putting together little short articles and things related to that, some lesson plans for my classes and so forth. 
And a friend of mine pointed out to me that I had enough material there for a book. I laughed it off the time. I said, oh, there's not enough here for a book. But over several years, I thought about it. The more I thought about it, the more I realized, you know, there might be a book in this. When I started writing, I realized I could have written four or five books out of this material. There's quite a lot here, and I barely scratched the surface with this one. But I was motivated also by looking at our churches and seeing how many Christians believe that they are not thinking like the world because maybe they don't smoke or drink or um, do, do certain surfacey kinds of things. They don't believe in abortion. They don't believe in uh, gay marriage or, or something like that. And they believe they're not thinking in a worldly way. But underneath the surface, they really are thinking very much like they're completely secular neighbors in most areas of life. Mm-hmm. And I wrote the book in order to help Christians see how different the world's way of thinking, even the good, respectable world out there, is from what God's Word has to say. I wrote the book to challenge people to begin the process of developing a biblical worldview rather than accepting the worldview of the secular world around them. Mm-hmm. And I think that's important. As I was reading um, through the introduction, um, one of the things that um, really stuck out to me was the the three type of um, three basic um, worldviews, worldviews, yeah. and how the in in America how we're kind of a self absorbed. Everything is about me. I love the illustration mm-hmm. with the balls and how they hit, um, but we think that it doesn't really affect. Um, each other that much we okay. affect each other a little bit and then the other one the more Hindu like um, the Italian. oceanic worldview yeah. mm-hmm. and then the um, relational worldview which is the biblical worldview and right. so um, what what I was thinking in, in, through as I was reading yesterday was the fact that um, a, a lot of times Christians can't have a biblical worldview because they don't know necessarily they don't know what's biblical in right. order to have that worldview, they just have a few verses. Um, I'm reminded of um, uh, Doctor um, William Lang, um, mm-hmm. and he says in his in his commentary on Hebrews in the introduction, most people say we're people of the Bible, but really we're not. We're people of a few verses because we don't yes. know the whole Bible. So we can't have a biblical worldview until we know the whole counsel of God. That's so true, Lisa. Uh, that's one of those areas where so many Christians think like the world. That atomic worldview, like the billiard balls or marbles in a jar, is the worldview of most Americans. I'm a completely separate individual. Nothing that happens to anyone else affects me, and what I do affects no one beyond myself. But that's not the way the Bible looks at it. The Bible sees us more like uh, aspects of a spider's web or, or a fish net or something. When a spider weaves its web, it may sit at one end of the web, but if a fly gets caught on the other part of the web, the spider knows it's there. Mm-hmm. Spiders yeah. don't see that well, but it knows the fly is over there because the web shakes as the spider struggles to free itself. So the spider knows the fly is is there as the fly struggles to flee itself. The spider knows the fly is there. 
because what happens in one part of the web affects the whole web. Uh, the world is like that. This is why it's so important to maintain moral purity within our churches. One person's sin affects the credibility of the whole church. One person's moral failure brings all of us down, especially in the eyes of the world. They see us as interconnected. We often, especially here in America, I hear people say, well, I don't need the church. It's me and Jesus. I know him. I've got the Bible. I watch Christian television. What do I need the church for? The Bible says that we are the body of Christ and individually members one of another. We're all in this together. We're tied to one another. We have a common Savior. We have a common problem, sin. We have a common Savior, Jesus Christ. We have a common destiny in the kingdom of God. And we need to be about the business of supporting one another, caring for one another, and living our lives in community, in, in close fellowship one with another within the body of Christ. That's a very important part of discipleship. And because we think like marbles in a jar or like billiard balls on a table, we, we, we don't think that way. The church gathers for an hour or two on Sunday morning. And then after the last prayer is said, it's like pouring the marbles out of the jar or breaking up the billiard balls. They scatter in all directions and have no real common life together. We really need to change that way of thinking in our churches. We need to begin to think corporately rather than individually. And I think the Old Testament, too, as we read through the prophets, we see that kind of um, community when when the prophets pray and they pray us or we <laughs> sinned. There's always an aspect. It's not the fact that I just sinned. Well, Isaiah would say, woe is me. I'm undone. But when but usually throughout the prophets and through Ezra or, you know, when we're talking about Jeremiah, it's we, the we language. Mm -hmm. And that's yes. something that we don't, when we mm -hmm. think about, um, when we think about us in the U S we're very, it's just about me, myself and I, um, I sent, but yes. not thinking about the fact, no, that it's we, if my brother falls, that's, that's me too. We're mm -hmm. one body and many members. Exactly. That's a very biblical way of looking at it. And sadly, we don't. We, th we think in terms of I, me, myself, uh, my personal relationship with Jesus, very much part of the American language of Christianity. But the Bible thinks of us as we all have a relationship with Jesus together. It, it, it's something we have as, as a group, not necessarily as an individual or not only as an individual. And, and we, we need to learn to think like that. We need to learn to pay attention to those we passages in the Bible. Have you ever considered how few passages in Scripture could really be applied if we were alone on some tropical island like Robinson Crusoe or something? Mm -hmm. We really need each other. What, what would I do if I were alone on, on some island, stranded? What would I do with bear ye one another's burdens? Love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, 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 do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Uh, he, he is the shepherd and we are, we are the sheep of his pasture. It's we, not I. Uh, about the only 
passage we could really apply to our lives stranded on that island is pray without ceasing. And if I were alone on some island, I probably would be doing that. (laughs) But so much of the Bible just becomes irrelevant if we're not in community with one another. And we need to see scripture that way. Uh, Central to what I'm trying to do with this book is the idea that a biblical worldview is something we develop. It's not something that you simply adopt by taking on a few doctrines. Uh, Creation, the fall, sin, salvation by grace through faith. Uh, these, These things, the Trinity, those are all important aspects. But a biblical worldview comes over a lifetime of carefully studying the Bible and living it out on a day-to-day basis. It develops. It develops over time. And I wrote the book to help Christians begin the process of developing and being intentional about developing that kind of communitarian worldview, that worldview that says we're the body of Christ together. A worldview that says we're very different from our secular neighbors around us, even though our neighbors may live respectable lives. There's one place in the book where I I, I say, uh, I, I challenge the reader, imagine if all of the front walls of all the houses on your street were removed, kind of like a doll's house where you can see into all the rooms. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> On a typical evening when everybody's home, could you really tell who the Christian families are on your street and which ones are just respectable, secular people? It would be very hard. Too often nowadays, we're all alone. Um, The father will be in the den watching a football game on television. His wife is maybe back in the study or in the master bedroom uh, online gathering recipes or chatting with friends or something. The children are upstairs in their bedrooms. If there's four children, there may be four separate bedrooms even. And each child is alone with their iPod or their uh, cell phone, computer, whatever. And nobody's really interacting with each other. I think Christian family life ought to, ought to be expressed more in, in a communitarian kind of fashion. Imagine the family sitting together in the den. Maybe daddy's given up watching the football game because of his family. And the family is praying together, talking together, maybe preparing to go out together to visit a friend's house or to visit a neighbor down the street or something. There's a deep sense of togetherness and a sense of family solidarity. Whenever one is alone in their own room, in their own world, there's no sense of family life together there. But for too many Americans, including Christian Americans, that's the norm. Uh, Everyone is absorbed in their own world. uh, And you compare your secular neighbors with your Christian neighbors, and there's not really much difference there. The biggest difference may be on Sunday morning, your secular neighbors maybe carry a set of golf clubs out the front door. The Christians are carrying Bibles out the front door. But other than for those few hours on Sunday, they live very similar lives. Can we find a set of values that draw us together as families and out of our home and into deep involvement in the lives of other people around us, people who are hurting, people who need, have needs, uh, maybe into the life of the church more? 
That, I think, would be an ideal expression of a biblical worldview in the context of a family. You can tell I'm passionate about this. You've seen the four worldview questions that I use here. This four-question rubric is based on Walsh and Middleton's rubric and somewhat on the Colson-Piercy rubric. What I'm trying to do is help people look at their own worldview in a very simple way, compare it to the Bible's worldview, and then compare it to the worldview of the TV shows they watch, the movies they watch, and so forth. These four questions, almost every television program answers them. Who are we? Where are we? What is wrong? And what is the answer? Those are the four questions. The book explains the four in in, in the first four chapters from a biblical perspective. The rest of the book challenges readers to consider how these questions might apply and how we might analyze the world views of, again, our favorite TV shows, movies, pop culture. But when you, when you get to ultimate questions, who are we as human beings? What kind of world is this? What is the major problem we're all dealing with? And how do we solve that problem? Then you get to the four questions at a worldview level. And it's fascinating to see how different religions and different philosophies answer those questions. Marxism, the communist world, who are we? We are people locked in a, in, in a world of class conflict. Where are we? We're in a world where resources are scarce and the, the upper class keeps more than their share. What's wrong? If we don't get our fair share, we live in an unjust society. So what is the answer? Class conflict and revolution to fairly distribute the wealth among everyone. That's the Marxist answer to those four questions. Um, Hinduism, who are we? We are all expressions of the one overriding, overarching reality that is Brahman. Where are we? We're in a world that's largely an illusion, a world where chairs, tables, people, trees, rocks appear to be separate but they're all really expressions of Brahman. What's wrong? We are ignorant of our true Brahman nature. So what is the answer? Follow rituals and devotional practices and and other religious practices to overcome our ignorance and experience our oneness with all reality. That's how Hindus answer those four questions. Our job is to answer those four questions in the best way that we can, in light of the Bible, and then compare our answers with the answers that the world is giving so that we can see where the world is challenging a biblical understanding of reality. It'll sometimes surprise you where you find them. Obviously, communism, Marxism, obviously, Hinduism challenges that understanding. But surprisingly, some of your favorite television shows will challenge that understanding also, or movies. Uh, I mentioned in the book Jack Sparrow in Pirates of the Caribbean. His way of thinking is very much like the, the, the balls, the billiard balls or marbles. He's very much an individual. And he, he says what's wrong with the world is the rules constrain him too much, and he wants to be free 
of all rule and all constraint to live his own life his own way. So what is the answer? Become a pirate. Terrorize everyone. But his commitment to individualism makes Jack Sparrow very popular with Americans. But we need to be aware that his answer is not the biblical answer. Does all of that make sense? Mm-hmm. <laughs> very good. Yeah, I think yeah. In, in, in the concept of right now, um, looking at the world, there's this whole thing of my truth. Um, this mm-hmm. is a, a Hindu perspective that's their truth, a Buddhist perspective that's their truth, a Muslim perspective that's their truth, a Christian perspective right. that's that's my truth. And I think the better way to interpret that instead of saying truth, because you always you always say, especially in your class, words matter. It's not yes. truth because when you say truth, you make it it's exclusive. Um, yes exclusive claim so the best the better terminology should be that's their worldview not mm-hmm. necessarily their truth because your worldview could be and you said this in the book your worldview can be incorrect truth yes, can never yeah. be incorrect um so it has to be we have to change our language and um because i hear celebrities and just people in general talk about it all the time from mm-hmm. my truth to that's my worldview Right, right. Keeping in mind, of course, that the biblical worldview is truth Mm -hmm. because it's based on God's revelation. Mm -hmm. Now, we may never get it 100% right, but we need to commit ourselves to spending a lifetime of of examining ourselves, as the Bible says to do, and adjusting our worldview always in light of what we're learning each day as we read the scriptures. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's true. What what has been your react? What has been people's reaction to your book? Uh, most people that I've talked with have really liked it. They found it challenging. They found it to be a a a, a comfort to them. Yeah, the the reaction has mostly been positive. Some people though are a little bit challenged by the idea uh, of not being a unique individual. We are individuals. But we're very much like one another. We're all created in the the image of the same God. And uh, we're all more like him than we are different from one another. Some people have a little, find that one a little challenging. I invite you to read the book and see what I say about that. Others find the idea that that maybe living an essentially secular but respectable lifestyle isn't really quite enough. Jesus died for more than making us respectable people. He died to make us radical people, radical in our faith, radical in our commitment, radical in our readiness to do anything and go anywhere to bring glory to God through Jesus Christ. And that's a challenging idea. The book is full of challenges, but for the most part, they're very good ones. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's it's definitely I think it's in in the United States it's it's harder than maybe a Middle Eastern country because they have this relational ideal in their cultures. It's in um very um family um centered, very um just there's this community centered. And America is 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 so such a self centered culture. Um, they're probably able to translate this better than we are. 
um, in a lot of ways. Right. Yeah. Now, it has a downside. Sometimes thinking too much communally can close off a people group from being able to hear the gospel. It's very hard, for example, to present the gospel in Japan effectively and some other parts of Asia because people are very much attuned toward maintaining and preserving family traditions in the past. And if there's no family history of people becoming Christians, it may be difficult for some people to become Christians. But when these people do come to faith in Christ, they do it with that community kind of feeling already intact. When I've been overseas and when I've been in uh, some of the churches, seeing the, the, the active and lively sense of community and participation in a common worship and a common life together has really been an inspiration. Mm-hmm. And because here we're so private and we're uh, so we live in a private and kind of a secretive society. I don't want you to know what's going on in my life or this is personal. What's in my house is in my house. We're not able to effectively um, live out a biblical worldview because we're not able to live in community with others and let a, allow others to hold us accountable, allow others to challenge our lifestyles. All of those kind of are trickle down effects from they are um, from this self absorbed. Have, have you ever been afraid the church might find out what a poor time manager you are, or might find out that you still struggle with a certain sin, or afraid the church will find out that uh, you're, you're you're scared to death of what are they going to think? We need to remind ourselves. They love us. They care about us. We're supposed to care about one another. And just as you want to pray for your friends when they're in trouble, let's try to remind ourselves they want to pray for you too. And if you're having a problem, if you're struggling with something, if something isn't right in your life spiritually, there needs to be someone in your church that you can go to and say, hey, I need your prayers. I need your help with this. I I need someone to stand with me right now because I'm scared or I'm struggling or I'm I'm facing something, a financial crisis or a, a, a major decision I need to make. And I need your prayers. I once told my congregation when I was pastoring, I said, there ought to be someone in this church that you know so well that if you have a flat tire at two o'clock in the morning and you don't have a spare, you can call that person and get them out of bed at two o'clock in the morning to come help you. Someone came up to me after church and said, okay, brother Fred, you're going to be the guy I call at two o'clock in the morning. (laughs) But at least he got the idea. You know, we need to be there for one another. And I think at heart we want to be but we're too afraid that others don't want to be there for us. We need to maybe air this out in church and 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 maybe have a time, a testimony time, where people stand up and say, I'll be there for you. I'll be there for you. I'll be there for you. And engender this, this real sense of closeness. Mm-hmm. And that goes back to, I guess, Paul's, um, the one another's in, in the New Testament. Yes. And... and 
putting others before yourself, considering others before you consider yourself. And I think that's something we have a hard time doing, putting other people, their issues um, ahead of our personal issues. Yes. Um, Yes. And excusing ourselves from being there for others because of what's going on in our lives personally. All too often, that's true. We want to be there, but sometimes our worldview actually hinders us from expressing that as clearly as we think we ought to, as we know we ought to. Yes. Towards the, yeah. Towards the end of the book, Lisa, I have a couple of chapters where I deal with the fact that the developing a biblical worldview presents some challenges and we need to change our way of thinking and acting. One of the real problems is that in an information age, we're hit with an awful lot of stories, an awful lot of ideas every day of our lives. And somehow we need to find a way to saturate our minds with the Bible before we go out into the world and maybe even while we're out in the world through the day because we're hit with so many on the Internet. There's over a million uh, websites on the Internet. Uh, It's been said that the Sunday morning New York Times has more information in it than the average preacher saw in his lifetime 300 years ago. Every Sunday morning, not counting through the week and everything else we see. I know I sometimes feel overloaded by the sheer volume of information that comes into my computer every day. Emails, blog posts, websites, uh, student papers even that I read. And it gets overwhelming. And sometimes the the story, the narrative, the truth in the Bible gets crowded out by everything else the information age is giving us. Mm-hmm. We need to be intentional about making the Bible's story the main story in our lives every day. And I think that's a challenge to so many. What would mm-hmm. you, what would, um, as we're closing out, what would you say What would be your final thoughts that you want to leave with our listeners? Final thought is this. Adopting a biblical or developing a biblical worldview will help you live a more successful Christian life. It'll help your prayer life become more effective. The Bible tells us if we pray according to his will, he hears us. If we have, if the Bible is the foundation for our praying, we'll be praying according to his will. It will help you be more effective in sharing the gospel. We call people to repentance and faith. The better we understand the Bible, the more, the more intelligently, the more clearly we can call people to genuine repentance and genuine faith. And finally, it helps us face life's challenges in a biblical way. We'll be more ready to go to a fellow church member and say, hey, pray with me about this. We'll be more ready to deal with life's challenges in the way that God would have us deal with them, and therefore more successful overcoming. That would be my final word. Adopt, begin adopting a biblical worldview and developing that into something that's almost second nature to you. It's the foundation of Christian discipleship and see how much more successful your life is, 
how much better prepared you are to handle the challenges life throws you. A biblical worldview makes all the difference. Just hacking the Bible onto an otherwise secular worldview will not help you much. Give it all to Jesus and let him minister to every part of your life as you saturate your mind with the word of God. Amen. 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 Well, thank you, Dr. Smith, for um, being on the G3 Project podcast with us. Um, you could sure. um, you could purchase Dr. Smith's book on Amazon. Um, just type in Developing a Biblical Worldview, and we'll have the link on our website. Um, again, that's Developing a Biblical Worldview, Seeing Things God's Way by Fred Smith. Um, thank you, Dr. Smith. Thank you, Lisa. It's been a pleasure. All right. Thank you for taking the time to listen to another episode of the Jude 3 Project podcast. Um, if you want to hear all our past episodes, feel free to go to www.jude3project.com. Um, we have um, podcasts. We have blogs. Um, we're going to do be doing so much more. We have some events coming up. We have some um, more interviews with some apologists coming soon um, and blogs. Um, with a little bit more regularity. So stay tuned to all the great things that is happening with the Jude 3 Project. Um, Remember, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.